Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're well underway with the Book of Kings Part 2, and so far it's all about the prophet Elisha, which is interesting considering that his reputation is so overshadowed by that of his mentor, Elijah. What is it about this man that makes him so compelling to the author? Let's pick up where we left off at the end of chapter 4 and see what we can discover as we see the healing of a leper and the tragedy of a moral failure that derailed a promising future. At the conference that I was at this last week, the highest moment was when I went to the book tables. (laughs) And... uh, and I, I started you know, doing some shopping. I, I, I like to have that, you know, look, looking at some of them. And then came across one, and I, I looked at that, thought, okay. And I picked it up, looked at the concept. Okay, this is I've got this is my first buy right here. Is that it's your a, book? No. Oh, it's a theological commentary on Second, First, and Second Kings. Uh-oh. Yeah. We're going to be on Second Kings. And I just oh, so, so just. That evening, I was looking through, I was beginning to do, or actually that day, that afternoon during one of the breaks, I began reading and and began marking. And I just opened it up to the passage that I had taught on last week with regard, you know, in 2 Kings 3 and the war with Moab and was looking at that and began to see the lesson that I taught that day written in a little bit more highfalutin language than I used here into that book. And just quote just a little bit to you and it, it brings it brings out the fact that God is a God of surprises because he's the he's the living God because he's the living God he's faithful to the faithful but he surprises even those who are faithful to him his he does not do things that are expected he said that's a and he pointed out now that's a discomforting thought to us that that worries us that bothers us but it only bothers us if we think we uh, and because we realize that we're not in control but it only bothers us if we think we ought to be in control and he brings it down to this point he says that what this what this story brings to us it reminds us that we are not in control of our lives. We are not in control of the ends. We are not in control of the storyline. And it, it brings us to a point of humility and, remind, and reminds us that God is God and we are not. Now, where have you heard that before? So I'm just wanting you to know. You may have heard it here first, but this is, you know... That is, that statement is original to me, but it is not original only to me. For it's true, and somebody else is bound to figure it out somewhere or other. All right, <laughs> that's where we where we go from here. Uh, we have looked at in Second Kings chapter four. We see Elisha bringing with him the presence of God where the presence of God otherwise has fled. The presence of God has fled from Israel because of, in in a symbolic way, in a spiritual way, the, the presence of God has fled from Israel. The reality of God has fled from Israel because Israel has given itself to believing that things that aren't real are real. They have given themselves to the false worship of the true God and then began to give themselves to the worship of a false God and then were brought back from the precipice of falling over that cliff you know just brought back from that but still you you've got this thing there there's this failure to recognize that that there's only one living God and uh, God keeps reaching out he keeps making his point and the kings who stand as the representatives of the people don't see it, only a remnant see and hear and understand. And Elisha brings a ministry to the people that is looking a lot like the ministry that Jesus will bring 800 years later. 
At the end of chapter 4, Elisha came again to Gilgal, verse 38. Elisha again came to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. By the way, famine is the overarching theme of just basically everything in these chapters occurs with the backdrop of famine. Now what we're talking about is not absolute starvation, but we're talking about scarcity. Nothing is easy. God has taken out his blessing from the land, and a land that ought to be fruitful. The only thing that it's fruitful with is weeds and difficulty. God has not made anything easy for those who have forsaken him. He has taken victory away except in a very limited way. He's meeting out victory, but he's not letting... He's not letting the kings who are in rebellion have complete victory. Not right now. He is showing them who is God. So there's famine in the land. But famine hits everybody, godly and ungodly alike. True? In the presence of Elijah, there is the presence of God. There is, the, there is faith. There is understand there is a touch with the living God the God who provides the God who sees the God who knows so Elisha came again to Gilgal where there was a famine in the land and the sons of the prophet as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him he said to his servant set on a large pot boil stew for the sons of the prophets why? because even preacher boys have to eat matter of fact especially preacher boys have to eat Oh, I'm telling you, you don't even know. So let's put on a put on a big old pot. We're going to make a stew. So they put together a kind of a mulligan stew here. We're going to see what we've got. And one of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. Came and cut them up, look them, and put them in the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. They looked good. So he goes out and picks some wild cucumbers of some, some sorts of variety, cuts them up, puts them in the pot. Just That's his contribution. Now understand, this wouldn't be so significant other than the fact that that first sentence, there's famine in the land. Okay? Every bite of food is precious. Now, some of y'all have seen and grown up in a time when that act, you know, that, that was really true. Every bite of food. I mean, we, we may see that time again, but right now our food is plentiful. Food is easy. Food, you know, food is relatively cheap, even with rising food prices, even with inflation. Food is, and it's relatively easy to come by. There, it is, when food is scarce, you don't waste anything. And here's this whole pot of stew ready to, fill, ready to feed a, a large congregation of guys. Somebody's put in there something. And look at the words that they use. They poured out some for the men to eat, but while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh man of God, there's death in the pot. And they couldn't eat it. Whatever had been put in the stew had turned it bitter. And whether it had actually poisoned it or not, they couldn't eat it. And the assumption was, and it's a good assumption, if, if you've got somebody who said, well, what did you put in there? What was that? I don't know. It looked good. <laughs> a lot of things out there that can kill you. And there's something, you know, they just said, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. That's bad news. When what is supposed to feed a multitude, and yet it can kill you, or you don't know but what that it can. There's a great sense of life, and they're 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 in a panic now. He said, "Bring some flour," and he threw it into the pot and said, "Pour some out for the men that they may eat." And there was no harm in the pot. Now, what was it about the flour that changed that? Not one thing. 
What did the flour do? Let me tell you what the flour did. It thickened the stew a little bit. That's what the flour did. What did it do to change the palatability of it? Nothing. Because the power isn't in the flour. Power is in the faith of the man of God. You know what this story reminded me of? Reminded me of an of Arthur Blessed. Y'all remember Arthur Blessed? How many of you know who the name Arthur Blessed? When I was in high school, Arthur Blessed was known as the pastor of Sunset Strip. And he set out from Hollywood, California. This this the first expedition. Set out from Hollywood, California and set out to carry across, across the United States from, from Hollywood, California to Washington, D.C. He passed through my town on the way. There was a big rally. I was pretty impressed. He had, an, he had kind of an impact on it. Arthur Blessed was the absolute original sold out to Jesus freak. He was the guy who invented Smile God Loves You stickers back in the 70s. I mean, that was his gig, his bad. But that was, you know, said, well, that was something of a gimmick. That fact is, he did that in every continent of the world, carried across from one end to the other, from, uh, from a border to a border. He did it in the Holy Land, crossing the borders of the Arab and Israeli borders and nationalities. He did it throughout Latin America. He did it in South America. He did it in Europe behind the Iron Curtain. He went to Asia. Carried the cross. Carried a cross. Now he had his ups and downs, had his problems, had his ins and outs, but overall throughout m most of his life and ministry, Arthur Blessed had been faithful to the Lord and done this in his his message was a very simple, straightforward gospel. That God brings his love to you in Jesus Christ who died on a cross like this for your sins and was raised from the dead. But Arthur Blessed lived a life very much, and I, I'm remembering how he was testifying to a convention once it said, I was, he, was, he was passing through sin, uh, Central America, Mexico, going through the, uh, you know, one of the things they say, do not drink the water. <laughs> don't do it. You don't, I mean, you're just, there are just, things in there that your system isn't prepared for. You're not, you, and he said, I didn't go with any other preparation than this. He said, you know, I'd, I'd go, I'd come to a source of water, I would be thirsty, there'd be nothing. I would take a glass, I'd lift it up, said, Lord, bless it, please, in Jesus' name, and drink it. He says, I've never been sick a day. He stood up on the platform uh, on that, this particular meeting that I was looking at. He took off his shoes and socks <laughs> and called up the, the main preacher, you know, and says, I want you to come. I want you to look at my feet. Say, so, you know, I have walked literally thousands of miles across this world. Look at my feet and describe them to him. And I looked at his feet and said, these are babies' feet. There's not a callus on these. I mean, it just... He said, yeah. I'm. What we see in Elisha is a ministry of the power and the mercy of God, but not divorced from the judgment of God. Look at what he says. He, uh, verse 42, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves and barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. He's bringing Elisha the first fruits. All of this is described and prescribed back in Leviticus 20. You know who you're supposed to bring the bread of the first fruits to? The priest. There is no priest that is worthy of receiving the offering of God in Israel right now. All the priests are non-Levites and priests of idolatrous calves. And Going across the border to Judah isn't that much better right now. They bring to, to Elisha. Why? 
Elisha is not only the presence of a priest, of a true priest in Israel, although he's not a Levite, he's a prophet. But he is the man of God. And as the man of God, not only is he the presence of a priest, he is the presence, he is representative of the presence of God in the world. Elijah, Elisha right now is the temple. He's a traveling temple. He's a tabernacle. The presence of God is over him. See, now this is, the, this is who he has become. He is in the process. By the time we finish the story of Elisha, they won't even be calling him by his name anymore. They'll simply be calling him. The, the writer of Kings will simply be calling him the man of God. Now there's a price that you pay for that. There's a price Elisha paid for that. I think he was willing. That's what he asked for. He asked for it and he got it. Be careful what you ask for. You're liable to get it. That's what my grandma always said. Now she was not saying that to be sarcastic or to cast, in, cast any aspersions on God. She's saying that because that is a spiritual truth. What you pray for, God will li is liable to give you. So search your heart. And may the desires of your heart be holy desires. A man came and he brought, the, he brought this food, these first fruits, this offering to Elisha in the sack. And Elisha said, give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he replied, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Where does the Lord say that? said it here to Elisha. God's told me everybody's going to have plenty to eat and there's going to be leftovers. So he said it before them and they ate and they had leftovers according to the word of the Lord. Folks, did you know that what Jesus did twice in feeding multitudes, in feeding thousands, was foreshadowed by what Elisha did for a hundred But did Elisha do that? No. Elisha was the vehicle for that. So what are we seeing here? God is providing for his servants. These, are, these men, these the sons of the prophets, these are the remnant. These are the people who really do. In a dark world, in a world that is going the other way from God, these are the men who are pursuing God. These are the men who are leading their families to pursue God. They are bowing the knee not to Baal. They are not bowing the knee to a golden calf at an altar that says it's to Jehovah. They are coming and they are seeking a pure life and a pure worship and a pure heart for God. And they have given themselves over to God despite the fact that that puts them at a social advantage, at a social disadvantage in everywhere that they are. Jesus, 800 years later, would say to his disciples, you Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And when they could say, when they could, when Jesus said that, his disciples could look at him and Jesus could remind them. He showed it in the scripture already. But I am going to do many times more than that. Chapter 5. Naaman, the general of Syria, although his name is so traditional, we're just going to say Naaman, all right? Commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Once again, there are the the writer of Kings takes a simple declarative compound or a declarative compound sentence, very simple in structure, very straightforward, and puts so much irony in it that we can hardly stand it. 
Naaman, commander of the Syrian army. Syria is the enemy of Israel. Syria is the enemy that is bedeviling Israel and beating them most of the time that they go out. And one of the reasons that they're beating him is that there is a guy, there is a general on the staff of the king Ben-Hadad of Syria named Naaman who is really good at what he does which is commanding armies. He is a very good soldier. Best soldier in the region right now. He is a great man held in high esteem and he's a leper. Now, one of the things we need to understand, first of all, you see that, that word leprosy. Leprosy in the Bible is not what we call leprosy now, referring to it as Hansen's disease. It's not it. You look at the symptoms of leprosy that are described in Leviticus as you, as you run down the list of those. It really is something that's more akin to psoriasis than what we would call leprosy today. It's not this thing where, you know, your body, pieces of your body are dying and falling off. It's, it's not like that, but it's a, it's a skin, it was a skin disease that cr created flaking, uh, burning even open sores on your body. Naaman is in a situation, he's functional in his life with this. And yet it is a constant agony. It is a constant trial. And it is something that is a despite all of the honor that he has even in his own society which wasn't nearly as hung up on it as the Israelites were. He's a leper. And as Alan is noticing he's a man through whom the Lord has given victory. Even victory over Israel. God's the God of victory. Ultimately, God is the God of victory. God is the one who determines who wins and who loses. And right now, God is on the other side. Now the Syrians, <clears throat> on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And this gives you an indication of the kind of warfare that's going on here. It wasn't open, wide open warfare right now. This is the, this is the warfare of border skirmishes, raids, push here, push back, encroach over here. You know, it's one of those little come and go, you know, just on again, off again, small scale type wars. Sometimes it's hot, some, sometimes it's a hot shooting war, sometimes it's a cold political war right now. Right now the war is kind of uh, between Syria and Israel is more of a cold war, a political war, a diplomatic thing. But characteristic of this war is that the Syrians would stage raids into Israelite territory and take captives, slaves. One of the captives is a little girl. <coughs> she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. See, it would take a child, even as a slave, to be sympathetic with a master who is of a different, I mean, who, is, who belongs to it. But she looks at him, she doesn't see him as an enemy. She says, well, he's, he's, he's my mistress's husband and he's hurting, he's suffering and she's worried about him and and she just says, you know, there's, there's a, a man of God in Samaria who, would, who could help this. So Naaman went and told his lord. 
Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, the king of Syria, who's Ben-Hadad, but they don't mention his name at this point. King of Syria said, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So the king does what kings do. He acts like a king. Everything goes from the top here. In my kingdom, everything goes from the top down. And, and, and so we're going to assume that everything goes from the top down in Israel, and so we're just going to command the king of Israel to give us some help here. So he sends a diplomatic letter there. He went taking with him 10,000 talents or 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing and he brought the letter to the king of Israel which read when this letter reaches you know that I've sent to you name and my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. <laughs> I love I just love that. I think the writer of Kings is is having a fun time with this with this, you know, diplomatic letter here because Notice when the king of Israel read the letter, what was his response? <laughs> he tears his clothes, which means, okay, I'm sunk. I don't, understand. I don't know what to do. We can't. And he, he just has a fit. He, he actually has a fit. says, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only could, Look and see, he's looking for a fight. You know, right now we've got things all settled. He's wanting to pick a fight. I mean, he's just, going, he's just losing it right now. Tells you how spiritually alert and aware he was. Now, he knows who Elisha is. He's not thinking of that. He's thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? Why does he not think of Elisha? He doesn't depend on him. Why doesn't he depend on him? He doesn't believe in God. Oh, he believes in a God. But he doesn't believe in God. Because he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't see that God has his servants in the world. He doesn't, despite the fact that he's seen Elisha work, that he knows that Elisha has the word of God, it never even enters his mind. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, well, that's a kind of a remarkable thing. That's, you know, that's not typical. Kings don't usually tear their clothes. So when Elisha heard that, which means that I'm, I'm telling you, that means that everybody in the country heard that the king had a fit. This made headlines. King tears his clothes. And everybody thinks, oh my. That's right. We're all in trouble. If the king is tearing his clothes, we are in trouble. Elisha heard it. And he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sends a messenger to him. Good old Gehazi, who we are introduced to in the previous chapter. You remember Gehazi with the, you know, when the, the Shunammite woman, her son and all that? Okay. Eli, he sends a messenger set to him. says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman is insulted. He is angry. He went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. His servants came near and said to him, basically talked to him in terms of common sense. and says, uh, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? I mean, what if, what if he told you to... Uh, other translations render this, you know, what if he told you to do something really big, wouldn't you have done it? What does he t say to do? <coughs> Go dip in the river seven times. Try it. Give it a shot. What's it going to hurt? So 
So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. So he goes and he self-baptizes seven times. Linda and I always remember uh, Pastor William Connor from St. Kitts who came visiting our church and he was singing some of the songs he sang to the children there. There was a man I know, Aleppo white as snow. He went to the river and dipped himself and his name was Naaman and he did one dip and he dippy dippy dip one, two, three, four, five, six, seven and he came up clean, clean. Just We just have to, you know, go through that, which we're going to sing it anyway in our, in our minds, so I thought I'd go ahead and share it with you. No, just, just here. Oh, no, 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 he was like six foot eight. He was, he was really neat The big, black, beautiful, Baptist bachelor bishop of the stair. That's what he called himself. Okay. Member of what? of the Order of the British Empire. Yes, That's right. So then he returned to the man of God and all he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. Now look at this image of the new birth that's taken place. We have here, and this is what we've got. We have the image of the new birth. <coughs> he has been cleansed. The Jordan River didn't cleanse him. He was cleansed by the washing of the water of the Word and the Spirit. And when he came up... Now the thing is, this was not a gradual thing. Seven times. And it wasn't a little bit of that leprosy that came off each time. That sixth time he went down and came up. And after six times, there's still no change. And he's thinking, what am I doing? But he goes ahead and does the seventh time, goes down the seventh time, and when he comes up the seventh time, his, ba- his skin is like baby skin. And now, <laughs> I'm a believer. <laughs> and he returned to the man of God, and he came and stood before him, and he, and he said, and now, Now here's the interesting thing. Elisha, as the representative of the sanctuary of God, why did he send a messenger? It wasn't to insult Naaman. But Naaman can't stand directly in the presence of the sanctuary of God because he's a leper. But now he can come into the holy place. That is what Elisha is in his self, in his person, representing. He is very conscious of the fact that he is the man of God. And representing the holy place, now the leper is clean and the leper comes and can stand before him. And now he talks to Naaman face to face. And he receives him. And Naaman said, as the Lord lives before whom, uh, says, and now, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Why? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. That gift is free. No charge. And he urged him to take it. But Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice or any, to any god but Yahweh. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there on, leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. And look at what, where Naaman is and look, there's, there's such a, an interplay and a, and, a, and a view. This is where grace and mercy intersect. See, grace and mercy are not the same thing. We often use those as though they were synonymous terms. They are not synonymous. They are cooperative. They build upon one another. But grace and mercy are distinct from one another. God in His grace has cleansed 
Naaman, the Syrian, the leper, and made him whole. And demonstrated in the process that there is a living God. And Naaman gets the message and believes in the living God. And pledges to worship all of his life in the living God. But he says, I've got a job. And my job is not a holy one. And part of my job is I have to accompany my king into the temple of a God who is not real. Rimon is the Baal, basically, of Syria. And I have to go into that altar. And my king is going to bow before that altar. And the king on my arm bowing before Baal. And I have to bow along with my king. Because I can't stay upright while my king is bowing. Notice what he says. Is that okay? He doesn't say, would that be okay? What does he say? Please forgive me. May the Lord forgive. He doesn't excuse that. But he says, if I'm, I've got a job to do. And in a way, this is kind of problematic, isn't it? He's asking him to forgive him for sins that he hasn't committed yet. Isn't that kind of a problem? Yeah, in some ways it is. What does Elisha say? Go in peace. I'm not going to bust your chops over this. Elisha knows where his heart really is. This is the intersection of grace and mercy. When Naaman had gone a distance from him, a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he, bought, what he brought. What does the NIV say? My master is too easy on Naaman. He is too easy on him. I, I think that actually brings out something of Naaman's thought in his heart. My master was too easy on who? Naaman the Syrian. I want to point something out to you. What does Gehazi proceed to do? He proceeds, proceeds to sneak around and does what? Runs after Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, got down from his chariot to meet him, says, is, is everything okay? And, and he says, oh, everything's fine. My master sent me to say, they've just now come from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him, to, and, he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And, and they carried him before Gehazi. When he came up the hill, took them from the hand, put them in the house and sent the men away. And they departed. Okay, now what motive do you immediately see in Gehazi? Okay, greed. What prompted the greed? Now notice this. You, you, you think and you think immediately, it, it, Gehazi's he's just greedy. He's just greedy. But what prompted the greed? This is what distinguishes the hardness of his heart. He had, he had witnessed what had happened and said, how could this happen? One, he's a Syrian. He's not Jew. And secondly, he's the guy that's been causing us all this trouble. Exactly. What prompted the greed was bitterness. I think if we talked to Gehazi, we would understand his bitterness pretty, pretty well. I think if we look back in the history of Gehazi, we don't know. We're not told. But I think if we talked to Gehazi, found out what his background was, I bet we, we would find out that the Syrians had caused a great deal of suffering in his life and his family. Maybe it was his daughter. Yeah. 
be like God to twist something like that. Yeah. I think we would have been told that if that were the case. But here's Naaman. He has caused great suffering in Israel. But he was given those victories by God. God gave him those victories, and that's what Gehazi can't really get his hands around. So at the root of it, Gehazi's angry with God. My master Elisha let let Naaman get off too easy. What does that really mean? Who is Elisha the representative of? God let him get off too easy. Let me tell you something, folks. Most rebellion and most unbelief is rooted in being angry with God. Most of the atheists, if not all of the atheists that I have talked to personally, I could find and probe and get to a root, a time in which God disappointed them, in which God made them angry. And they can have all kinds of intellectual constructs for why that they don't believe that there's a God, they don't believe that this is a a logical, but for the most part, the real, especially the hardcore atheists, are so because at some point in their life, they expected God to do one thing and God did something else. And they didn't accept the idea that God is God and they're not. And Gehazi, now here's the tragedy of Gehazi. He is the only one of Elisha's servants who is named. Now what was the pattern? Elisha followed the pattern of Elijah. Elijah came to Elisha and picked him and said, you come with me. And Elisha st- Elijah started walking the other way and Elisha came and said, what, you know, wait, let me, let me deal with this. Let me get my life absolutely out of my way and then I'll follow you. Fine. And Elisha was with Elijah all the rest of the days in the last several years of Elijah's ministry, Elisha was there and Elisha did nothing. Elisha poured water on the hands of Elijah. That is, Eli- or we might put it this way, Elijah, Elisha carried Elijah's briefcase. He was his assistant. He was his aide. He was nobody except that he served Elijah. Now, he has taken the place of Elijah. Gehazi is named. That means that Elisha had picked him. Elisha had picked him to be... Eli- Gehazi was the brightest and best. He was the, he was the one with the greatest faith of those among the sons of the prophets. He was the one with the greatest understanding. He was the one who really had potential to take this ministry into the next generation after I'm gone. He couldn't pay the price. And that price is, you don't have a will of your own. Everything you have is God's. You have no more life. You have no possessions of your own. You have no more personal rights. You you no longer have any personal limitations. You no longer have any personal privilege. You no longer have any personal pride. Everything is given, and God is all. And in return, you become the man of God. What happened instead to to Gehazi? Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? (laughs) What a question. Remember when Jesus' disciples had been arguing about one, with one another on the road? And then they got real quiet 
before they came into where Jesus was? What were they arguing about? Which one of us is greater? Which one of us is on top? Who's the best? Who's the number one disciple? You get your brackets in order. Who's number one? They were arguing about that on the road. But they quit before they got up within earshot of Jesus. They walked in real kind, you know, looked real spiritual, had, you know, all the ruffled feelings are, you know, pushed out of the way and everybody's, everybody's smiling, everybody feels good. Hello, Master, how are things? How, how is everything going? So what were you guys arguing about on the way over here? What, us? Gehazi. Where have you been? Nowhere. Nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Now, Elisha is sitting miles away from all of this. He's telling Gehazi, play by play, blow by blow, word by word. What goes on? <laughs> now think about it. How long has Gehazi been with Elisha? I don't know, but it's been for some time. It's been for some years. He still hasn't learned by now. You don't hide something from a prophet. Why? Because you can't hide anything from God. He sees. What a potent phrase. He sees. But this... What? Well, his statements there tell me that, that Gehazi was thinking about a lot of other things, too, in the process. That it wasn't just money and clothes. That was now. But he had... Okay, let's look at that statement. It says, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyard sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? If you look at this and compare it, this is a phrase that's taken from all the way back when Samuel was telling the people of Israel... You know you get a king, this is what they're going to do, and they will come and they will take these things from you. And this phraseology is the same phraseology that's used in, by Samuel. And what he's telling to Gehazi, say, you didn't just take a little bit of money and some clothes, and a few clothes. You have joined the movement of the Israelite kings. You're not any better than Ahab. who demanded to take the vineyard of Naboth. And when he couldn't have it, he was ready to have him killed. He is lumpy. He says, your sin is no different from that. What you have claimed, what you have taken, is no different from that. You set greed loose, and there is no limit to it. What is greed ever satisfied with? More. Verse 27, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, like snow. Here's another one of those turnabout stories. And the interesting thing about it, it's like, it's just... We get through the, the healing and the conversion of the... Uh, get through that... And we know something's up because the chapter's only two-thirds of the way through. <laughs> Isn't that like the parables of Jesus? He tells the story of the lost son who goes away and then he, he realizes, he comes to his right mind and he realizes and he returns to his father and his father receives them. And the story is only two-thirds of the way over. Because there's another son. And that son is bitter. 
And that son doesn't want to receive the son who has come home. Because he's bitter. Oh, see how we need to see these things. What's the point of all of, of all of this? And I don't want to over-spiritualize this. I think by spiritualizing some of these things, we have under-spiritualized them. We have taken these things and made them into, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but we've made things like this into children's stories. And these are stories we should tell our children. Don't misunderstand what I'm talking about. But we need to learn from this what God is doing and that what God is doing is counter to many of our expectations, if not all of them. God has a purpose in this world and we need to get in on that purpose instead of trying to tell God what He ought to do. Gehazi would like to have told God what he should have done in this situation. Oh yeah, you should go ahead and heal him so they'll know that there's a living God in Israel. But then you ought to demand tribute from him. You ought to make him pay for all the suffering and the misery that he has inflicted upon us. And Gehazi misses all the while the point that Naaman couldn't inflict any suffering and misery on them that God didn't let him do. That God had given him the victory that he had been given over the Israelites. And that God had a point and purpose in using Naaman to bring defeat to an Israel that is in disobedience against him. We've got to enlarge our frame of reference of what God is doing. If we don't, we're going to get mad at God too. Don't sit there looking at me spiritual either. If we're honest, we'll realize that it's happened to most of us at some time or another that we've been disappointed with God, we've misunderstood God, sometimes we've got downright angry with God. We need to deal with that. We need to bring that back. We need to remember again, folks, God is God. We're not. And get happy about that. Because, folks, let me just go ahead and tell you. We're not qualified to be God. The story of Elisha is, as we've seen, full of ironies and twists. We're not done. That will continue, but in our next episode, we will also have our eyes open to the spiritual warfare that is behind, or rather above, the conflict taking place in the world. Join me next time for the continuation of the adventures of Elisha the prophet in the book of 2 Kings. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.